Get stoked for the new single, Heard It All Before, from Vancouver rock and rollers Ben Sinister, out March 16th on Cordova Bay Records. Visit cordovabay.com to pre-save on Spotify Plus and see more of our upcoming releases, including local blues keyboardist David Vest's self-titled LP, out April 6th. Cordova Bay Records, celebrating 20 years of local music. listeners welcome to the all access music podcast recorded at cfuv radio 101.9 fm in victoria british columbia yes this is a music podcast which means the stories we share throughout our eight episode series will take a close look at vancouver island's music scene as well as those who are a part of it in all of the many ways you can be involved with music and potentially some aspects that fly under the radar like music therapy and the theremin My name is Elise, the producer, also currently the hoster, and I'm super excited to share some of the cool stories I've had the pleasure of hearing while in the creating process of this podcast. Fortunately, I was not in charge of the podcast name, All Access, so don't be disappointed if I can't access everything. So I guess the grand question we're hoping to answer here is, what happens behind what we hear? I mean, like, what components are there to music that really make up what you hear on an album or at a live performance? I can guarantee you that what happens behind the finished product comes with a couple good stories from a few interesting people. And hey, you might even learn something. So the theme of today's episode is community, collectivism, the feeling of togetherness. What better way to pair music and community than to look into the city's local choir scene? It turns out that Victoria's choir scene is really a thing of beauty. Well, now that I think about it, I'm sure a lot of cities have beautiful choir scenes, but okay. What makes a choir beautiful? In Victoria, it seems to be a sense of camaraderie alongside being a part of something bigger than yourself. The choir scene here also provides tips on how spooning your dog might be the key to a better performance. Stay tuned for more details. Here with me today is Keenan. Hi Keenan. Who are you? I'm just a local uh, musician and artist, mostly musician these days. And yeah, that's the, that's it. He's just a local kind of dude, you know? It's true. Tell me, what do you think about when you hear the word choir? I think of a group of people that are singing music. That sounds pretty accurate. What do you think about when you hear the word community? Community makes me think of people who are typically uh, physically close to each other, as in living near each other, who are somehow bound to each other. I think, I mean, it can obviously mean a lot of different things, but closeness and... Nice work, Oxford. That was great. Definitely uh, <laughs> working togetherness. The working togetherness, the close-knit community, and what does choir and community have in common? We are about to find out. So as much as music is about human versus instrument, when it comes to choir, it can also be about human versus human versus human. The choir that sparked my interest in Victoria is literally called The Choir which is a non-audition pop-based choir that has Victorians lining up to join. No joke. Little did I know this spark of interest would soon change everything I ever knew and considered a choir to be. I mean, like, I've probably exerted less than a billionth of 1% of my thought process into considering what a choir is since grade two. But upon further 
investigation. Wikipedia tells me that choirs, also called a choir with a Q, FYI, began all the way back in ancient Greece. Ancient Greece? Yeah, choirs started way, way back, back in 2nd century BC, way before grade 2, um, as part of Greek tragedies, plays, and comedies. So, to start things off, to really get the ball rolling, I had the pleasure of interviewing the choir's director, Mark Jenkins. Mark not only conducts the choir, he also plays the guitar while he conducts. And when he's not conducting or guitaring, he's working on his other musical projects, alongside playing the pedal steel and lap steel. Some seriously underrated instruments. So, the choir is sort of a phenomenon. It has over a hundred people on the waiting list. That's a long waiting list longer than the hundred members in the choir. There are some hundreds of people on a wait list. Some of these waiting people have been on the list for up to two years. It got to the point where Mark felt he had no other option. He started another choir. Well, I kind of have four, um, oh. kind of. I have a, what I call the mini choir, which is a, is a, a 12 person mm -hmm. group. Um, and then I do this uh, drop-in choir called All Together Now, which mm -hmm. is it's like monthly. And so people can just like show up and get a little dose of it. So the second choir Mark started was for all those who are patiently waiting to be part of the original choir. And believe it or not, after all Mark's work to make and create groups for people to sing together in, Mark's involvement with the choir came as a semi-surprise to him. The choir was started by Ann Schaefer mm -hmm. through Larson Music. So just for a little context, Larson Music was a fantastic music store in Victoria that recently shut down. Anne Schaefer, quote provided by Mark, is a Victoria treasure who brings creativity and flair to all her musical endeavors. She is known for her work as a singer-songwriter, jazz vocalist, choir director, voice teacher, and workshop facilitator. And after a year, she left. And somehow around sort of like the fear of the group and the shake-up with her leaving mm -hmm. and somewhere in the fear of me being a choir director with absolutely no experience yeah. like zero like it, I'd only been in one choir and that was the choir for one year wow. um, ever I'm a, I'm a musician so I had you know musical experience but I'm not even that great of a singer honestly mm. uh, <laughs> And so I think the collective group, like sort of unsureness, something happened pretty quickly where, like I think a lot of people who knew me were, were rooting for me and there became like the, the, the community bond and friendships and camaraderie went from this being kind to each other and whatnot into like it turning into a family. in and out of piano playing since my younger days, but it always felt like a lonely practice. That being said, I'm the kind of person that aims for group settings in most capacities. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think there will always be an aspect of, you know, solitary practice that is required in music, especially classical music. I don't know exactly what kind of music uh, you said that they were covering kind of uh, 
popular tunes? Is that a thing or? Yeah, it's um, it's a pop. It's based on pop music kind of choir. Cool. Well, yeah. I'm sure people are practicing by themselves, but obviously, the the work that comes out in the end is. I mean, singing in a choir is just an amazing feeling. I think it's. I would say that it it can it depends on the thing, but it can be more gratifying than like a solo performance that you've built up to. So like, okay, if you're cla- into classical music and stuff, you play the piano and stuff. What do you? How do you feel about the difference between like a group setting or a independent setting in music? Like, do you, yeah, just. Well, okay, a group setting is just I without sounding too cheeky. It's it's electric. It's like. Uh, I don't even know if cheeky's the right adjective there. But anyway, it's just, I don't know, like playing with other people is amazing. It's, you just, you're listening so closely to what another person is doing and just everything about it. It's, it's such a thing to aspire to. And it's something that you can glean so much extra musically, um, like in just in your life about how to live in harmony with your surroundings is just all about sort of self accommodation and uh being able to fit into things in a in an appropriate way but also sort of being assertive about your own presence and what have you i don't know music just after a while it just feels like a big allegory for everything else Okay, back to Mark. The choir started doing some festivals together, like notably first Rifflandia, and then started doing things like singing at farmer's markets and uh, Campbell Bay Music Festival on Main Island where we camped, like 70 of us camped together for three days. Whoa. And... With with family and friends and stuff, too. Yeah. And some things started to happen there. So the, the Campbell Bay Music Festival, um, it mostly takes place on a property of a family called the Iredales who, who run the festival. It's like on their like farmland. Nice. But, and it's like right by the water and at, at Campbell Bay. You know, like from the campground, it's a one-minute walk to, to be swimming in the ocean. It's pretty amazing. But this particular performance um, where the, the light turned on, I guess, was uh, a daytime performance in this band shell where the farmer's market is. So the, the festival would basically have uh, some daytime programming in the little town center on Main Island. So it's like, right beside the community hall and across the street from the from the, the fire station or whatever, you know, like there's like, and beside the library, like and all the amenities in Main Island are basically for the most part in this one little spot. And that's where they have it. And that's sort of kind of like their, um, and it's free. Like whether you, you have a ticket to the festival or not, you can go watch this. It's their, uh, like their community service for, you know, that's a way of saying thank you for, for, for the people coming to their festival, clogging up the ferries and, and probably, you know, uh, fill overfill flowing the toilets or whatever, you know, create, you know, the, the demands that on this little island community, you know, the population gets quite a bit bigger 
and it, it impacts. So that's, that's part of their way of giving back, which I think is really great. So there were people who, uh, in that audience who were there for the festival and had, like biked or walked or drove, drove or whatever to the, to the site like from the festival site to the little town. Mm-hmm. And then there was also just people who were just like buying their cherry tomatoes and kale for the weekend um, who happened to be there. And, and so there's this, this beautiful wooden band shell that had been built. And then, um, so the choir is up there just sort of crammed, crammed in like we barely fit. And I was like teetering on the edge of the stage just to, with my back to the audience, which is always precarious. Like I'm always about to fall off something. Um, and, and then there's this, and then there's just like, a, you know, a couple hundred people, I'll, I'll guess. Mostly just sort of sitting on the grass. This is like noon on a Saturday and a warm summer June day. And there'd been some, the, the group that played before us was uh, like a guitar and fiddle uh, duo. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like, that's kind of like the scene, and you know, like, and then, beyond, you know, beyond the, like all these people sitting down, there's just like this gentle little Island time market, you know, very quaint. Yeah. So it's very quaint and, and, and relaxed and, mm-hmm. and, and, and slow paced and sweet um, to where, you know, the, the, bo- the, those bonds got, got tighter as they often do when you travel together. You know, there's something about having to take the ferry and there's a whole big group of people took their bikes over and a bunch of the rest of us, you know, who had vans, like took their, took everybody's tents over and set them all up. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like some people like, showed up late kind of in the dark and their buddies sent their tent up for them. Just little things like that yeah. started to really make the group gel. And I could tell a huge difference when we were on stage at that festival on main Island, there was, we were singing songs that some songs that people didn't know that like, you know, aren't super well known that really had an obvious effect on the audience. Like, like the, it could tell just by looking at the choir because I have my back to the audience that something was happening. And I, and some people in the choir were getting a bit teary in songs that maybe that normally didn't happen so much. And when I turned around to talk to the audience, like a lot of people were crying, like a lot oh during God. our set. And it was getting kind of, it was getting a bit heavy and like in a good way. And then we sang, uh, I think we, cl- I can't remember if we closed our set, but it was definitely the end of the set with uh, Madonna's Like a Prayer. And there was like so many people were bawling in the audience. I'm like, like there was something way more happening with that song than I, I I love that song, but it doesn't, it doesn't have that. Like there was way more happening than you would expect out of that song. Like the lyrical content, you know, it's a, it's a great song, but like I said, there was something more happening. There was something much bigger than that song. I, or at least that, that I ever thought that song would be. And it's a huge song. So, and that all kind of, 
and I just kept. Like, I feel like it was like a, like it was a like it was a bloom, or more of like a burst of of energy amongst the, the group of people in the choir. I don't know if you guys are picking up on this, but as Mark explains the choir's experience at the Campbell River Music Festival, he keeps revisiting phrases like "way more" or "something else." It was the something else that happened before and during their performance that couldn't be spelled out. Up until this point, I didn't have a clue what his way more was about. The only parallel I could draw were concerts I attended that seemed to be way more than just music, an experience. But in the upcoming week, I was about to find out exactly what way more was. vulnerable singing like opening your mouth and singing if you're not like a somebody who's like done that their whole lives it's a pretty vulnerable thing to do um you can't just like you can't cheat you know and so it's so it's really vulnerable to sing and and doing that all, all the time or like once a week or more with other people is really like it's really powerful I asked Mark if this sense of community translated into any member of the choir's lives outside of choir practices and performances of course he said definitely but there was one case in particular that stood out to him. There was somebody in the, who was, who'd been in the choir from the beginning and really after I took over really started like being like telling all their friends and got a, like they had like four or five friends join all at once based on their recommendations. And one of those people when they first joined was really shy. You could tell that he was funny but really shy mm-hmm. and really, re- really reserved and really seemed like, like a guy who mostly just stayed home and played video games or, or read books or something, but was pretty like solitary person. Now that person is like Victoria famous because at the first, at the first after party after uh, the first concert that he sang at, there was sort of like some group karaoke going on. Like somebody just had a projector projecting songs on the wall 
like the you know the, like the YouTube karaoke on the wall, and everybody was singing, and it kind of turned into a dance party, and he started dancing to Barbie Girl, and just giving her like just giving her, and it blew everybody's mind, including his own, and now he's like <laughs> he has like a an Instagram account where like people hashtag him when they see him dance because he's two or three times a week he's somewhere dancing like every Buchan Buchan concert uh like no matter where they play he shows up and he's in the front dancing and you know he just like his he's he is credited joining choir with changing his life yeah I didn't know that was a thing that could happen honestly like Mm -hmm. like my my innocence was much to my uh uh advantage I guess (laughs) I just didn't know that that choir could do that to people. I didn't know the, that the impact it would have upon other people and, and myself, too. So this individual, whose life has been forever changed by the power of choir, goes by Arthur. And alongside Mark, the change was for the better. When I heard this, I could feel my inner investigator start to, like, itch under my skin. Arthur was the perfect example of where music and community met to create basically like an intersectional phenomenon. I wanted to talk to Arthur about his experience in choirs, maybe karaoke. I just felt like I had to find this Victoria legend. I see people who like come to their first, come to their first rehearsal and they're like, they're barely singing. They're just kind of checking like, am I right? Am I right? You know, they get pretty worried about like, am I screwing up or whatever, which is totally human and natural or singing into their books so that their voice reflects back in their face and (laughs) other people don't hear it as much. And then by, by the time they've got to that first concert or especially after that first concert, once they've kind of gone through the whole process to then be like standing up straight, a little straighter, singing out a bit more, leaning over to help the new person that just joined find their note. Um, that's that, that vulnerability in the group setting, just like, uh, it's like seeds of camaraderie, I guess. But I was still curious about the something else that was going on at the Campbell River Music Festival. Why were people bawling their eyes out to a Madonna cover? I'm just wondering, like, what do you think that was? Like, what happened? I think it was born out of the, real, like, the strong like camaraderie of the choir it came out of like the excitement and uh, and not just excitement, but there's something about like camping together and being together. I know like playing in bands, I've always felt like if everybody drive goes to the gig on their own and sh- and just shows up, does a quick sound check, leaves, goes eat dinner separately, and then shows up and plays. That's the band's good. It's going to be good. But something happens when you like ride to the, ride together and eat together. Totally, and then, hey? you know, like you, like you just, it's almost like the intro, you, you, when you get on stage, you're not like reintroducing yourselves and making small chat. You're just straight into the, you just get, I find it's a more direct line into the, the heart of the music. It makes perfect sense to me. The opportunity to interact with your bandmates before you play could generate positive vibes and in turn, better your performance on stage. What do you think, Keenan? Yeah, I think it really it really helps everyone get into the same zone and just because it's uh, it's a totally different situation if you sort of arrive to a gig 
separately from everyone else. I mean, it depends a lot on the kind of music that you're playing or whatever. I mean, typically if it's a rock show or something, you know, you're all like having a beer or getting some food before the show. Uh, and it's fun. Uh, you can hang out and just like chill essentially, which, yeah, as I said, you know, get in the same headspace. But for, for other things like jazz gigs, it's kind of interesting because you, uh, you, a lot of the time you can just kind of arrive to play music uh, and I mean you know I've played a gig before and haven't seen my friend or both my friends and however long and then all of a sudden we're just playing music together and uh, that's also kind of fun though too because there's a lot of spontaneity and sort of yeah. you're, you're almost having uh, you're almost catching up with someone uh, through the music in a funny way. Oh, but, that's interesting. But at the same time, I, I definitely think that, like, in the choral kind of context and everything, I mean, you know, I think it's it's very much beneficial to have, you know, time with the musicians that you're playing with before the actual performance. I think it's really in, invaluable, almost necessary. people roughly um, singing who had a similar thing they'd been together you know slept in tents they could hear each other snoring uh, the, the night before our first performance there uh, we'd all hung out and like made friends with one of the alto singers golden retrievers like everybody's taking turns spooning him to stay warm at night uh, watching the festival like so I think we were just really connected on stage Right, I'm thinking a golden retriever can create bonds between anyone. Like, I might even hate my ex-boyfriend a little less if he bought a golden retriever. There's just something about that creature. They're so loyal and, and you know, they just, they have powers. But I, I know he never will, so the hate lives on. Anyway, I felt like an artist really permit myself to talk about the choir. Yes, this is me giving myself permission to do something. I needed to understand the choir with my own two ears both from the perspective of the individual members and from the perspective of the choir as a whole. And of course, I was dying to meet the infamous Arthur. The choir only performs a couple times a year, but thanks to Mark, I was able to sit in on a choir practice to get an idea of what Victorians were lining up to join. And let me tell you what I heard and saw. But before I begin, I would like to first mention that before I got there, I imagined myself sitting in the back of a room full of people, huddled in a corner with my Zoom recorder, trying to get a good angle to capture the sound of the baritone without drowning out a soft singer on the other side of the room. No, not even close. Mark had tailored choir practice to Elise's personal choir practice. When I arrived, Mark greeted me with a hug and led me into a room full of people chatting loudly and passionately. It was basically a hundred people enjoying a hundred people's company. Community. I wish I understood It used to be 
What you just heard was the choir. Have you ever been in a situation where the audience was smaller than the performers? I was the audience, me, Elise. Behind the conductor stand, fully encapsulated in what sounded like a hundred angels. All of a sudden, that way and more, that something else that Mark tried to articulate punched me square in the ears. Okay, I would like to say that I'm a pretty heartless piece of rock. I don't cry very easily, but there I was, bawling my eyes out in front of a hundred strangers. They sounded perfect. So amongst my skills and heartlessness, I also assumed that my quest to discover community and its relationship to music would be to teach the masses something, the people who listen to my podcast. Well, I mean, I hope so, but I think my investigation shone the most light on my own lack of community. So, my advice to you, listener, join a choir. I have never been in a room full of people that liked each other so much, and I think something has to be said about the inclusion I felt as an outsider. This in itself was a hard point for humanity. A lot of people in the choir have been a part of it for over two years. It makes sense that bonds are strong, but there was something else, or someone else, I should say, that I had to meet before I left. Finally, as the members of the choir scrambled to pack up guitars and put away chairs, Mark introduced me to the Victoria legend, Arthur. So you have a YouTube channel now? Is that correct? Uh, no, I've been... <laughs> mostly I'm just putting clips on like Instagram at the moment. Yeah, cool, cool. But I don't know, the trick for me is largely yeah. that it's like people love my dancing and they're totally. always like, Why? like, they see me in public and they're like, do you have like a, a thing? But my problem is just that... I'm not the one with the video. Yeah, I, I'm the one dancing, and it's like dancing. I have to like hope that people get video and like totally. get it to me. So I'm yeah. like not really getting anywhere too fast with that. But you know, yeah. I'm, I'm just like just remember it's Arthur Buckland and the choir. Yeah. Yeah. No. But I don't. Know. What? What is that? No, I no, I didn't. But, what yeah. story is that? Well, Arthur we Buckland in the wild and and the choir. Oh. But we we opened actually at the Oakland Sunset Market. That's just like right here outside yeah. in the summer and um, I got a bit infamous with the band that was before us Funk Cannon they're like yeah. local like they're like high school like late high school early university guys and they play like yeah. crazy sax stuff cool. like dance stuff oh, so I, I always go to their shows and like dance my ass off <laughs> and so I was dancing to them and then I was like okay sorry guys like I gotta run and like go warm up with the choir and they're like yeah yeah so apparently while I was warming up with the choir they announced the next act as Arthur Buckland and the choir <laughs> like I come out like out and some people are just like did, did you hear what they said <laughs> so, in retrospect when I listened to that clip I think it was a little starstruck because my investigative journalism skills just plummeted but to quickly wrap things up, um, for the greater portion of the first podcast, I would like to quickly thank everyone who was involved. My handy co-host, Keenan, 
Mark for the awesome and elaborate interview. Mark, again, for the awesome personalized experience at choir practice. Like, I don't even know if they were practicing or just showing me their best songs. It was incredible. Arthur for chatting when you should have been packing. And thanks to my editor-in-chief, Kevin Hammond, for turning all the sound and audio on this podcast into art. All that, baby, I want to know if you can save it or let me go for sure. Check out the latest album, Slow Wave, by The Velveteens on Fierce Panda Canada. Featuring surf pop jams like All Night Baby, Don't You Feel Better, and Midnight Surf. Find it on Spotify, Apple Music, and wherever you listen. Head to fiercepanda.ca for more info. I would also like to take a moment to acknowledge that the city of Victoria and surrounding areas lie on the territories of various Straits and Coast Salish people's land, including the Esquimalt, Songhees, and West Saanich people. So here's a fun fact. It's not that fun, actually. Here's a fact. So back in the time of residential schools in Canada, settlers, aka white people such as myself, wanted to teach Indigenous people basically how to be white, which in our narrow opinion was how to be right. So they banned Aboriginal people from speaking their language because they saw it as a threat to assimilation. Can you imagine not being able to speak your own language and being banned and punished for doing so? Um, I can't. In order to communicate without their language, directly pertaining to music, different bands of First Nations people across Canada used vocables. Vocables were basically vowels. They were, for lack of a better term, languageless. And they used them to communicate to each other. So, the Salish people's language is known for being quite consonant-heavy, so it has a bit of a harsh-sounding tone to it. So, using the vowels, it softens the sound of the singing, but in another way, it masks their language. So, when you need to communicate, but you can't, you have to come up with your own language. So, in a sense, the invention of vocables is kind of the dismembering of a community, followed by the salvaging of it through song. That is music bringing people together when we try to stop them. Alright, so we will ease into the second half of the podcast through a more in-depth look first at vocables through someone who practices them in their own work, Wayne Lavallee. Who is Wayne? Wayne is an award-winning recording artist, singer, and producer of the Métis Nation in St. Laurent, Manitoba. He has received two Juno nominations, was named Best Aboriginal Singer-Songwriter in 2006 by the Canadian Folk Music Awards, and has won multiple Canadian Aboriginal Music Awards. Wow, what a man. 
He is currently situated in Vancouver, BC, and has come forth to talk to us about what community looks like for him. But first, a little insight on how vocables were used by the man himself. Vocables for me is, um, they're like creating songs, traditional songs that are more social. They're not, um, um, like, because when you have traditional songs from communities, they're shared within the communities, right? So you have to ask for permission to use those songs, especially if they're, if they have language within them. And um, vocables are non-language, they don't, they don't have a language, right? They're made up of consonants and vowel sounds. So if I just take basic um, melodies, uh, progressions, and uh, use a basic form of chanting, like way, hey, ya, na, cha, hey, ya, lo, I can create chants that are my own, that are, um, that can be, that can be shared to community in community, right? So vocables are, are, um, are chants and, um, that can be, um, I don't know, have you, have you ever heard of that band, uh, Sigaros? They sing in gibberish. Sigaros, when the first time I heard Sigaros, I was like, wow, what the heck are these guys singing, right? Yeah. And I thought it was a language. Oh, my God. But they're, they're singing in their own made-up kind of language. That's oh, kind of my vocal God. Gibberish. So that's a prime like, example of what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, and it's so beautiful. Yeah, the language was banished and the cultural teachings were banished and ceremony was banished. So so if you weren't singing any, you know, kind of language, they, you know, you couldn't, you know, get in trouble for it, right? So, yeah. but that's how, I mean, that's how I connect with um, creating um, Indigenous sounds and vocables and music. I mean, I, I remember making them up making up vocables very earlier on in my career, especially mm-hmm. when I was starting to learn about my, my culture because I'd never learnt drum songs. I didn't have anybody to teach me that, so I made them up myself. Yeah. And I made up the sounds myself, not knowing that that's kind of what we've been doing for a long time, right? So, I mean, that's, um, that's what I'm interested in the most is trying to create um, songs and sounds that are rooted in that style of of music, you know, vocables, and then adding instrumentation, you know, guitars and keyboards and stuff like that, creating, you know, unique sounds, you know, it's, um, I mean, it's interesting, and I mean, there's definitely a market for it out there as well, (laughs) especially in Europe. Europe, you say? A market for Aboriginal music? Yes, friends, and it is booming, with a way bigger audience than is seen in Canada and the U.S. Shocking, really. But... Before we get into this, I'd like to pass it over to Wayne to talk about his story of community, or lack thereof. Here's Wayne. Yeah, in the film I, I describe, I talk about reconnecting with um, my birth parents when I was 16 years old, because I was taken from them during that whole 60s scoot movement, which was um, it was kind of like the second phase of assimilation for Indigenous children. Okay. Um, so my, my mother and father were taken away and put in residential school, and their parents 
um, and then during the 60s, um, um, the children of residential school survivors yeah. with residential schools were taken away uh, and put into non-native um, foster homes uh, where they were deprived of the culture, culture and they were basically taught not to uh, uh, be native, right? Yeah. So it was, it was kind of another form of a, you know, cultural oppression um, because, yeah, I didn't grow up with any knowledge of my culture whatsoever. It was just, you know, I was just a little brown kid trying to figure out, you know, how I, how I fit in, in within the, where I was in, in the world, right? And I knew I was different and, and I encountered lots of racism, which kind of, really affected me as a, as a as a child growing up, if you can imagine, right? Just, you know, not fitting in and not being able to um, have any sense of pride or belonging to mm -hmm. who you are and where you come from. So I think that, that was kind of, for me, growing up like that was, it was, it was really, it was tough, right? It mm -hmm. was tough for me and my brothers and sisters, but I think it was, well, I know it was music that really kept me, um, going and kept me, I guess, safe in the world I was in, and kind of just kind of, I drew that as an inspiration to, um, you know, keep going. And I knew that music at a very young age, even at five years old, I, I knew that was going to take me to um, a place where I am now. I mean, in terms to Aboriginal music and developing the industry, I had, had no idea I was going to be contributing to that. But I, I knew music was a big part of my life, and I was kind of you know, a huge extension of my soul. So that's what really, that was my survival back then. When I met my parents at 16, I still didn't have a sense of community. I mean, I always knew I was native, but I... I didn't know what that meant, or I didn't have a connection to it until, because I didn't have any stories, I didn't have any songs or, you know, dances. I didn't go to cultural events at, when I was that, at that age. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, I didn't uh, really come to know myself until I think I was about 20 years old. And I had to, and it was, and that was through the arts. Uh, my first introduction to uh, the Native Arts, my first introduction to the Native Arts was through Native Theater. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just stumbled upon it. I got involved in a a theater company, a Native Theater company in Vancouver called Spirit Song. And it just kind of opened my world. I just, it was like, I went, wow, there's Native actors, there's Native Theater. And they were telling all our stories through stage and through oh. song and through movement. And that's where I learned about residential school. I remember the first time going into this Native Theater company, and I just stumbled upon it because I knew I wanted to perform. I wanted to be an actor as well. And I was looking through the paper, and I responded to this ad about some play, and it was Native-themed, and I met this producer. And um, the show didn't end up happening anyways, but he told me about this, this Native Theater company called Spirit Song, and he introduced me to this, this company uh, back in the early 90s. I, it was in 1991... And it was this theater company called Spirit Song. And that's where I actually met Marie Clement, the director of the Royal Ford. 
like 26 years ago. And uh, she was my first Native theater teacher. I did a summer program in Vancouver, Native theater summer program. She was the first person I met uh, who taught me Native theater. And that's where I, that's where I learned my culture, was through the arts. Okay, so I should let you guys know that prior to this interview with Wayne, he had just finished producing the music to an amazing film called The Road Forward, which is directed by Marie Clements, who he mentions in the interview. Marie Clements is a Métis playwriter, performer, director, producer, and screenwriter. Man, so many multifaceted artists. Anyway, the film is about the Native brotherhood and sisterhood that formed in the 1930s. It's really incredible. If you want to learn more, I highly recommend checking it out. I would like for the truth of how this country came to be to be fully understood by every single person who lives here. And I think if that happens, we have a shot of getting something right. That's how I learned my culture, was through through the arts and yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was quite amazing, and I started doing theater at a young age, and, and then I dabbled in dance, and I toured Canada as a dancer, and then I started um, writing songs, and I started writing songs about stories of myself and stories of my people, and, um, and that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. <laughs> wow, so when did you enter into the world of music? Well, I mean... I, music has always been with me since I was a kid, right? But professionally, um, I started writing songs. I wrote my first album and released my first album in 2000, which was, how many years ago was that? 17 years ago. Oh, my wow. God. <laughs> 17 years ago, I, I recorded and released my first album. And, um, and it was really cool because I was introduced to a, a whole niche market, the Aboriginal music industry, which I never knew even existed. And it, it's a huge uh, industry. There's, I mean, we have our own award shows. Wayne was nominated that year for Best Rock Album, and they flew him out to Toronto for a huge Canadian Aboriginal music award show. I felt like, you know, I, I felt like I was a rock star, you know, it was, it was really amazing. And it turns out that the ever-expanding market of Aboriginal music reaches further than Canada. There is a huge demand for Aboriginal music in Europe. So much so that Wayne's record label, Dixie Frog, is actually located in France. Dixie Frog released an album in 2009 called Indian Reservation Blues and More, which is a compilation of 25 Aboriginal musicians. Musicians solely from Canada and the US. Wayne's tracks on the album are titled Trail of Tears and Shed a Lot of Light. After receiving Wayne's demo, it took Dixie Frog 48 hours to sign him. Before he knew it, they released his album and he was touring France. It was pretty cool because I've never had that treatment in Canada as a mu musician. 
I've, I, it's been a struggle in Canada as an Aboriginal musician. Not as an Aboriginal musician. The niche market treats me well, but just in the mainstream music industry in Canada, it's, it's really hard to break into the industry. But in Europe and in France, I mean, they love Indigenous artists. They love Aboriginal music and they love Aboriginal politics. So they just, I mean, I got treated so well in, in France and um, it was just... I think it was probably the most amazing musical experience I've ever had touring. What's crazy is the places in which we find a sense of community. Who would have thought that Wayne's community of listeners were overseas, even though Canada is one of the main producers in Aboriginal music? So, for all of you lonely people out there that think no one understands you and no one ever will, those like-minded individuals might actually just be an ocean away. An ocean, a border. Some are far, so get out there. Yeah, it's, it's been my savior. You know, without it, without music or the arts, you know, I, I mean, I could have easily gone the other way, right? I've been easily, you know, on the streets or whatever, right? Because I've been on my own since I was 16. I, I, I got abandoned by the foster home I was in when I was 16 years old, so I, I had no choice. I, 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 didn't even, I couldn't even finish my education. I was... I had to find a way to live. So I, I was working when I was 16 and then just trying to, yeah, just figure out how to survive, right? But before Wayne's success in France and after the hardships of an isolated youth, Wayne's first sense of community began in the Two Spirits Theatre. Through Spirit Song, made a theatre company uh, back in 91 or 1990, I think it was. Uh, when I walked through the doors of that theater company and just saw a bunch of brown faces, all just, you know, really strong in their culture, mm-hmm. and and they're all performers, right? I just I just knew I wanted to be part of that. I was so shy. Yeah. I was such a shy kid. I didn't speak a lot. I didn't, you know, I was just very reserved because, you know, that's kind of how I kept myself safe when I was a kid, right? So mm-hmm. it took me a long time to be able to open up and perform on stage. Um, for the longest time, when I started writing songs, I used to just play on my guitar, sit down and close my eyes and just play my song, right? I never yeah. connected with the audience. It was Because my stuff was so personal, right? My, yeah. my art was so personal, so it was hard for me to kind of release that and put that out there. Let's all go down to the lodge To the place a long time ago We'll swim, sweat, sing and dance That will help me build tattered souls Helping spirits guide the wounded heart Let the sacred journey go Finally, 
Wayne shared a little about the lack of community that was offered to him and to myself, actually, growing up. A lot of people don't know a lot of things, you know. I mean, when I was in junior high school, you know, 15 years old, I wasn't taught anything about my culture in school. I was taught a little about I was taught a little bit about Métis culture, right? And you know, the Hudson Bay Company and whatever, right? And the fur trade, and that was it. Um, most people didn't you know anything. Well, anything about residential school. I mean, it was a secret. It was Canada's deepest and darkest secret at the time, right? And still, even when people see the film, right, they often say, I had no idea about this history. Like, they're just shocked that they didn't learn any of this in school or nobody told them about this or they didn't learn any of these stories, you know, because this is all new information for a lot of people, you know? It's um, a history that's, you know, when I look back, it's, it is painful. I mean, especially when you're a child growing up, you know, without a culture in, you know, in foster homes in abusive situations, right? When you're taught not to be Native, when you're taught not to be Indian, right? And then having to learn that later on, right? But, I mean, I, I, I'm really hopeful. I mean, I, I have a lot of hope and... I'm not going anywhere, and you're not going anywhere, and, you know, Ketcher's not going anywhere, so we all have to figure out how to move forward, right? Yeah. And exactly. I think by having this film, that's how we do it, right? That's how we communicate and get the information out there. Um, and, um, I mean, just in the last 25 years, it's, I mean, I've seen a huge, um, I don't know, um, cultural revitalization just within myself and within the people I've witnessed. I mean, I see kids, little kids that know their language and they know the culture and they, you know, they're very, very strong in their culture, right? And they're yeah. very proud of their yeah. culture, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the young the young kids, the young people, they, they know that, right? And they're teaching that, right, the best they can. So, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to the, the next, you know, 150 years. So thanks to Wayne for sharing his story. I guess I, without him, I wouldn't have been able to see how this repression that he faced has led to what is actually opposite of community, but how he sought out a community of his own and the amazing successes it has led to. It's an it's exciting time to be Indigenous. It is. Things are changing. I say warily, but hopefully. So here were two great stories from two sides of music you might not usually get to look at. A local choir and a famous Métis musician, both producers with an awesome angle on music and community. Once again, I want to give a big thank you to everyone who helped bring this podcast into fruition. Wayne LaVallee for the amazing interview, the amazing lady who led me to him, Katja DeBach, and for the many connections she has provided. 
Of course, big shout out to CFUV for getting voices on music out there into the ether of podcast space. All Access is made possible with the generous support of Cordova Bay Records and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Stay tuned for the next episode where we tell you how to start a band in three steps. That's right, three steps and you too could have your own band. Hey, I didn't say they were easy. is supported by Cordova Bay Entertainment Group, supporting local music since 1998. With artists like Acres of Lions, David Gogo, Sam Weber, David West, Steph McPherson, and more. Cordova Bay Entertainment Group, celebrating 20 years of local music. Learn more at cordovabay.com.